Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What you assume in other people is also what you get out of them. So right now we've designed so many of our institutions, you know, our schools, our prisons, our democracy. We've designed them around the idea that people are fundamentally selfish. Hello, welcome to the Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So one piece of feedback I get sometimes, uh, a piece of feedback I agree with, is the show doesn't do enough on climate change. And so we're going to do a lot more. I'm planning a series for the fall that is going to look at climate change um, from the science to the politics to the effects from a number of different angles. And I would love your ideas of peoples and angles you'd like to hear it from, <laughs> or you'd like to hear from, rather. Uh, so email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I would love your ideas for climate change episodes you would like to hear. Um, and, you know, you can assume that I know and am thinking about some of the big, obvious players in the space, like the biggest books, that kind of thing. I'm a little bit more interested here in how to make sure that if we're doing a couple episodes on this, they're not all the same episode. There's so many ways to look at this issue and so many ways to look at what it's doing to us and to our politics and to our worlds and to our futures and what can be done about it. Um, so I'm trying to make sure that we cover the waterfront as best we can. Um, and I would, again, love your ideas for it. Again, that is Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. But today, today, my episode is very much not about climate change. It is instead of about dystopia, it is about utopia. Um, my guest is Rucker Bregman. And he is a Dutch historian and journalist. He writes for a day correspondent. He's written a great book a couple years back called Utopia for Realists. And this is a book about, one, in some meta level, the importance of thinking in terms of utopia, the, the importance of knowing where it is you want to go or where it is you want your society to go, even if it's not there yet. Uh, it's easy to be very caught in what you can do right now or in five years or in 10 years. But imagining what you could be in 100 years that's a North Star that is, in one level, disciplines your thinking and helps you decide what is really important now, but also, I think, helps you imagine what is important now that you have stopped thinking about and stopped working towards because it just seems too far out. Uh, but he's got a beautiful book on this, and so I want to talk to him both about his idea of utopia and the concepts of human nature it's built on. But also what his utopia actually is, which includes universal basic income and open borders and a 15-hour work week, 
Why does he think these things will work? Why does he think they are better? Um, so this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Again, email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Rucker Bregman. Rucker Bregman, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm thrilled you're here, uh, but right before we actually began doing this formally, you were explaining that you live in an incredibly boring place by choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my life's philosophy. Why is that your life's philosophy? Well, if you want to have an exciting public life, I think Flaubert once said this, is if you want to have exciting public life, you need to have a really boring private life, right? And I think the problem of our generation is, uh, you know, of the millennials, is that they have these very exciting private lives with Tinder and Instagram, and therefore they sometimes have a bit boring public life. So I try to do it the other way around. Oh, that's interesting. Don't you think the problem is that the like the fake public life is too exciting, but then it turns out, as I understand it, nobody's having sex and everybody's anxious all of the time? <laughs> well, maybe I should have said political life. You know? <laughs> if you want to have exciting <laughs> political life, then you need a boring private life. I, I've always loved that Flaubert quote. I, I think that I think there's a lot of truth to it. I I remember I took a, a book leave at one point and I thought that when I went to this kind of quiet place on the shore and just wrote for a little while that my work would feel a lot smaller because like everything would feel smaller. And actually like everything felt a lot bigger because I was just less distracted all the time. There was more room to think and more room to to mentally explore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I really uh, I really recognize that. So I want to talk about utopia. Um, but I want to begin where you begin in Utopia for Realists, which is you write, in the past, everything was worse. For roughly 99% of the world's history, 99% of humanity was poor, hungry, dirty, afraid, stupid, sick, and ugly. It's this very Stephen Pinkerish argument, but where he uses that history to push us to value the system we have and all that it's done for us, you use it to argue for a radical departure of the system. So, so where do you and Pinker differ? Well, I would say, I mean, he blurred the book, so... Uh, we have some uh, some agreements, um, but I would say he has a has a bit more sanitized view of history, right? So if I would sketch a, sort of a caricature of his view of history, it would be something like uh, we had this thing called the Enlightenment, and you know people suddenly became rational and they had wonderful ideas about progress, and then we basically implemented those ideas. And look, look at all the statistics, right? We're richer, we're wealthier, we're healthier than ever. Um, so it's a bit of a sanitized view of history, right? It doesn't show you all the struggles and the fights, you know, and the battles for power that went on at the same time. So it seems quite ironical to me that the the Steven Pinkers of today, you know, they don't like social justice warriors, even though, you know, the great achievements that they're so happy about have often been achieved by the social justice warriors of the past. So I think I'm a bit more sympathetic to the social justice warriors of today. One of the the places where you make almost a further argument than he does is the idea that the world we live in now would have been seen as a utopia for for much of human history, and and it's very similar to the utopias that got described in the Middle Ages. So why doesn't it feel like utopia? I think this is one of the great lessons of history. It's basically why I like studying history. It shows you that things can always be different, right? That there's nothing inevitable about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. So what I always would like to do is to zoom out a little bit and to ask the question, how will the historians of the future look back on us, right? Because we can look back on the Middle Ages and say, oh, these people were barbarians, right? They were so uncivilized and they had the Inquisition and witch hunts and all kinds of terrible things. But then surely the historians of the future will look back on us and, you know, have a 
few criticisms here and there as well. So that's that's a really interesting question to ask. What are what are sort of the barbarian things we're doing right now? And uh, basically, my book is about that. You know, it's about the big injustices of today. Of you know the fact that we're living in a war world with borders, with global apartheid, uh, with massive poverty while we're rich enough to completely eradicate poverty, a world where we're working harder than ever in jobs that are often pretty meaningless. You know, I think the historians will look back on that and say, hmm, that's pretty weird. But one thing to, to, to ask this question a, a bit of a different way, one of the, you, you tell a story and I'm going to forget the utopia's name, but, but there was this vision of utopia that was fundamentally a utopia of material plenty. You could like grab geese out of the sky and there was always enough food on the table and it was great. And, and you make the sense, the point that for, for, most people alive now, um, or at least many, we're, we're really there. And yet, you know, people aren't happy or a lot of people aren't happy. There's a lot of frustration. And one thing I always wonder about is, is there any utopia that would actually feel like a utopia? Or is the human animal wired in a fundamental way because of our evolutionary impulses for dissatisfaction? So you can make things better in an objective material sense, but you're never going to make them good and people are never going to feel that good within them because we're just not built for that. Yeah, but I don't really see happiness as the goal of life, right? Happiness is a nice side effect of some activities or whatever, but I think utopia is, the point of utopias is to keep moving. You know, to keep on improving your society, and and you know, we'll never solve the problems of life. You know, it was <laughs> uh, the great economist and philosopher Karl Marx who once said that uh, you know the point of of in in his view of communism or his socialist utopia was not uh, you know to solve all the problems of life, but simply that we could actually face them. Right? Utopia is really always something at the horizon. So every time you arrive in Utopia, there's something new you should try for. And the frustration I had, I mean, this book is already five years old. Um, when I wrote it in, uh, in Dutch in 2014, my frustration was not that we didn't have it good, but that we didn't really have an idea of where to go next. And the, the funny thing is that so much has changed in the past five years. I love this idea actually at the beginning of the book about the purpose of utopian thinking. Can you talk a bit about that, about this idea that this is, uh, you have this great line, the book isn't an attempt to predict the future, it's an attempt to unlock the future, to fling open the windows of our minds. Why, why should we be working backwards from utopia? Well, it's a very simple idea. So uh, we know that every milestone of civilization we've you know, become used to right now, the, the end of slavery or democracy or equal rights for men and women, these are all utopian fantasies in the past. So the point is to come up with new utopias, right? New visions of a radically better society. It was, uh, it was Oscar Wilde who once had this wonderful line, progress is the realization of utopias. And um, my book was very much, you know, an argument against people who are often well in the center and who view politics as a, just another form of technocracy or management, you know, small, solving problems in the present, you know, this idea that we had arrived at the end of history. Uh, that was the idea. So I, I basically wanted to say, look, I know that there have been horrible <laughs> utopias in the 20th century, but we shouldn't throw it all away because, uh, yeah, progress is all about the realization of utopias. So we're going to get into the specifics of, of your utopia, but I'm actually interested in this in a kind of like big picture sense. What do you need to build a vision of utopia? What are the tributary streams of it? Like, what do you have to have an idea of if I'm sitting in my room at home and I want to make my own utopia? 
Like what what is like the the Rutger Bregman recipe for constructing your utopia, whatever that might be? Well, every utopian vision is grounded in the present. You know, it always starts with the injustices of today. So, for example, I have a lot in the book about the way we work today, right? Nowadays, there are millions of people working in jobs that they don't really care about, you know, writing reports that no one's ever going to read or sending emails to people they don't really like, building financial products that only destroy wealth, you know, could go on and on. So then the question is, how would a society look like where people have actually the freedom to decide for themselves, you know, what to make of their lives, where work and play sort of become the same thing. You know, what kind of policies would we need there? And then, you know, you can arrive at different things. You can say, well, we need a radically shorter uh, paid working week. We maybe we need to implement something like a basic income. But it really starts basically with the problems you're facing right now, right? You're sitting in the office and you're just depressed. <laughs> <laughs> it, it also seems to begin, at least to some degree, with an idea of human nature. In Utopia for Realists and then in, in the book you're working on, which you kindly sent me uh, an introduction to, I think Utopia for Realists has an implicit idea of human nature that's pretty important to what it sees as possible. And then the next book is much more of an argument for it. So could you talk a bit about your idea of human nature and how it differs from maybe what is conventional in politics today? Yeah, I think we should talk about that a lot. You know, we can fill the whole podcast with it probably. Wonderful. Because uh, <laughs> I was worried about where we we're going to go. This is basically my last question. So I was hoping. <laughs> yeah. That. You know, I've listened to dozens of your episodes and sometimes I've been uh, shouting at my phone. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, because uh, you seem to have become a little bit pessimistic, Ezra. Um, so uh, I, I really think that it's indeed very important that we we need to move to a much more hopeful vision of human nature because otherwise... You know, you can't do any of these things, right? It's just uh, you, you become a cynic and uh, political change becomes impossible. So this is actually what I've realized. Uh, I had lots of debates about uh, guaranteed basic income with lots of people. And you go over the evidence, you know, you talk about the experiments, you talk about the, all the economic studies, and you always, always end up uh, discussing human nature because <laughs> people are like, yeah, you know what? Maybe the science says this, maybe the science that that. But, you know, I think people are just lazy. It, it's, you know, it doesn't work. You know, people have to be forced uh, into a job or whatever. Um, so it really all starts there. Uh, you know, my th that's why the next book is basically an argument for a different view of human nature. But tell me about your view of human nature. What do you think is true about human nature that, say, a pessimist like me may not, um, although I don't want to quite put myself as a pessimist here. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. Okay. I actually just had on the podcast George Will, and he just wrote this giant doorstop of a book on conservatism. And he's arguing that conservatism, as he understands it, this conservative sensibility he's he's making the case for, is all grounded in a, in, in a view of human nature, a view of human nature and of individual rights. And in particular, he says, it's grounded in a view that human nature is relatively unchanging. And the core cut between him and progressives, in this case, I think I would be framed as the optimist, is that, that, that human nature really doesn't change. It is not malleable in the way social engineers like ugh, Rutger Bregman think it is. So, so tell me... Tell me your view of human nature. Like, where, where do you differ from, say, the, you know, the, the conservatives on this or even, you know, the, the neoliberal technocrats? Well, I do not believe that human beings are, you know, blank slates as, you know, Stephen Pinker actually wrote a book about that once. I believe actually that most people are pretty nice, you know, that we're generally a cooperative species, uh, that we're creative, that we, you know, like to make our own choices, that we're quite playful. And, uh, you know, there are, there are darker sides. So I'm not saying we're angels or anything. 
Um, but the point is, I guess, that what you assume in other people is also what you get out of them. So right now we've designed so many of our institutions, you know, our schools, our prisons, our democracy. We've designed them around the idea that people are fundamentally selfish. You know, the, the American Republic is basically based on the idea that people are selfish. You know, if you read the founding fathers, uh, I think it was John Adams who once wrote an essay uh, with the title, all men would be tyrants if they could. Uh, so they're view was that you had to have this whole system of checks and balances, right? Basically corrupt people who are controlling each other. That would be the only way to establish peace, you know? Quite a sort of the, the Thomas Hobbes worldview is that if you don't have this system, then you have a war of all against all. And uh, I just have a very different view. I think there are lots of great examples of companies and, and countries and, and organizations around the globe that have moved to a different view of human nature, you know, where you actually trust people to make their own choices. And it turns out it brings the best in people. I love this idea that, that we get out of people what we expect from them. So tell me a bit about the places where you think they do that. What, what is a place, a company, uh, a, a country that has a very different expectation of people than, uh, in this case, I guess, America? Well, the most interesting question that sociologists have been asking basically since the 1950s, you know, around the globe in the World Value Survey, is the question, on average, do you think that most people can be trusted or do you think that you can't be, you know, careful enough? That's probably the most important sociological, sociological question. And then if you go around the globe, then you indeed see in countries like, you know, Scandinavia, I mean, Holland, where I'm from, also scores, uh, scores pretty good on that question. And if you look at the US, you know, it, it used to be higher, but it has gone down in the past couple of decades. And it's probably, you know, the most important indicator of that something's going wrong. Now, if you, if you have sort of a general trust in your fellow human beings, you can all do all sorts of wonderful things. So one of my favorite examples is a, is a Dutch uh, organization called Buurtzorg. It's a neighborhood care. And what they've done basically since 2006 is they built this organization now with 15,000 employees of uh, nurses and they've uh, ditched all the managers. So there are no managers in the company anymore. It's just all, you know, self-guiding, self-directing teams of around 12, 13 nurses. Uh, they, you know, decide for themselves what kind of education they need. They manage themselves. And turns out it's cheaper, it's more effective, clients are happier, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's based on this whole philosophy that, you know, if you trust people, then you don't need to manage and control them. One of the things that critics on this will say when you bring up the Scandinavian countries is, well, that works because they're very small and they're very homogenous. Um, Utah also in America is very white and it's very Mormon and it has very high levels of social trust and they have a more communitarian ethos. And there's this idea that as you become uh, a larger uh, country, um, bigger in scale, but also a more diverse country, that you can't rely so much on trust, that it doesn't work, that people people just mistrust each other more when they feel more different from each other. And I mean, this will get into things you want to talk about later, but this would be very magnified in this way of thinking around open borders. So look, what do you say to those critics? Well, you know, they have a point, but I think they overplay their hand. So let me give you one example. Um, since basically the 50s and the 60s, we've seen so much social science about, you know, how human beings are groupish. You know, we like to live in groups and, you know, we our empathy is often connected with our xenophobia, right? But 
I think it was a couple of episodes ago that also in this, po this podcast, you talked about, uh, for example, the robber's cave experiment, this, this experiment in the 50s where, you know, there were two groups of kids going to a summer camp and they, you know, beforehand they didn't know they would be deliberately put into contact by, uh, by the researcher. And it turns out that, uh, you know, they had this immediate war going on. And it's always used this anecdote as an example of, oh, look how groupish people are. It's already when they're kids, you know, when they're five or six years old. And we have all these fancy experiments that show this. But actually, there's a really interesting new book out by a sociologist called Gina Perry, uh, who went into the archives and looked at, you know, specifically this experiment. And turns out that actually the researchers had already tried this experiment. Uh, but didn't publish the first version because the kids became great friends. And uh, in the end, uh, the researchers were finding themselves because, uh, you know, they couldn't get the experiment to uh, to get the right results. Same is true for famous experiments like the Stanford prison experiment, right? The experiment that everyone knows about. Look, look what happens. You know, you put uh, students in a prison, you know, six of them are, are guards and six of them are prisoners. And uh, look, the kind of terrible things that happen. Well, actually, the archives have opened up. Turns out that for 50 years, it was basically a lie. You know, this guy, Vidip Simbardo, has been <laughs> making it all, all up, basically. You know, there's this uh, French sociologist, Thibault Texier, who has written a fantastic book about this. And the title of that book is The History of a Lie. Um, should really be translated in, in English, by the way. Um, so I, I, I do see the point, but I think that nowadays a lot of people are, are sort of overplaying that argument and, and human beings also have a, a great capacity for friendship and overcoming group boundaries and actually meeting each other and uh, having a good time. Let's dig into to some of the, the dimensions of your utopia. Uh, make the utopian case for universal basic income to me. Okay, so... Universal basic income or a guaranteed basic income, you know, I'm, I would be uh, happy with uh, both of those things, um, is all about freedom. That's the, the central, that's the most important argument for it. It's about the freedom to make your own choices. It's about the freedom to say yes to the things that you want to do, you know, the kind of jobs that you want to do, or if you want to start a new company or move to a different city. And it's about the freedom to say no to things you don't like, right? No to a boss that harasses you. No to a wife or a husband that you know that you don't really like anymore. Um, that is that is basically what it's all about. Um, and then uh, the, if you, if we move to the to the details, most people would say it's a monthly grant enough to pay for your basic needs. You know, food, shelter, clothing, uh, and it's absolutely unconditional. So you can decide for yourself what you want to do with it. So uh, I think you probably know I'm very uh, – I've lived a lot with the idea of UBI because my wife, Annie Lowry, wrote an amazing book on it called Give People Money, which is out in paperback this week if you don't happen to, to yeah. have it. Um, and it. And it's a much better book than mine, if I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to compare anything, but obviously she's the okay. world's greatest writer. Um, yeah, yeah. But so I've thought a lot about U UBI, and one of the things that has always struck me about it is that the case for it is typically made in dystopic terms where I think the case is very weak. Instead of yeah. in utopian terms, where I think it's quite strong, this is a disagreement I have among others with Andrew Yang uh, when he was on the podcast, in which if your idea is that automation is going to take every job, then a UBI doesn't really do all that much for you. If the idea was you're a teamster um, driving a truck making $75,000 a year and the robots took your job and now you get 12000 or 15000 in a UBI, like that's not a good situation. You're, you're, you're still going to be rioting in the streets. 
Whereas to, to your point, if the idea is that we should just build society differently, that everybody should have the basics taken care of, it should just be part of living a dignified life, and we don't want people to – we want people to be able to search for jobs that fit them. And if they can't find one, you know, maybe you don't just have to work a terrible job in order to eat. Um, mm-hmm, that's always mm-hmm. struck me as a, as a much more um, encouraging vision that matches much better with what people are talking about when they're talking about what's really a guaranteed minimum income, right? It's a low income. Um, it, it can do some things, but it's not enough to replace working if you want to live um, a particularly comfortable life. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think the automation argument, the the argument, the robots are coming for your jobs is, to be honest, probably the worst argument for basic income out there. Uh, I must admit, I do make the argument in my book. It's it's one of the final chapters. So, um, and sure, I mean. Yeah, but you don't, I read it. Your heart wasn't in that argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, I think we should never underestimate capitalism's extraordinary ability to come up with new bullshit jobs, right? So uh, this is... Yeah, this is one of my arguments too. I agree with this. Yeah. So, I mean, nowadays, if you look at a recent poll, you know, it's a a really interesting academic study by two Dutch economists where people from 40 countries, 20,000 in total, were asked the question, do you think your job adds anything of value to society? turns out that around 25% isn't really sure. No, probably not. Uh, So this is what they call, uh, I think the politically correct term is socially meaningless jobs now but i think people know it by the politically incorrect term which is bullshit jobs yeah it's a, it's a, the the concept is uh, from david graver yeah. by the way the american anthropologist who wrote a great book about it anyway um nowadays it's 25 percent um but you know it could be 50 percent in the future it could be 75 percent it could be 100 percent right we could theoretically live in some kind of dystopia in the future where we're all just pretending to work and and you know sending emails and 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 writing all those uh, not necessary reports and the robots are doing all the the real work and all the valuable work I, i'm so interested in in, in this I, have you seen any data on what kinds of jobs tend to get classified by people as meaningless i've been wondering about this yeah, for, yeah, for yeah, a while yeah 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 so this is a fantastic paper you'll love it so the the, the two economists are robert durer and max van lent uh, what they've shown is that there are actually four times as many bullshit jobs in the private sector as in the public sector, right? So we so often hear the story about, you know, public sector and government being wasteful. Well, if you actually ask people themselves, people are much more likely to see their job as useless in the private sector as in the public sector. Now, who are these people? The funny thing is that they often have wonderful LinkedIn profiles. You know, they went to great universities, to the to the Ivy League universities, and they have excellent salaries. Uh, they work in marketing, they work in finance, but still at the end of the day, if you give them uh, a bear or maybe two, uh, they'll admit that their job is, you know, perfectly useless. Uh, so that's that's something that absolutely fascinates me. We're talking so much about what's wrong with a meritocracy, you know, a society where we reward people based on skills and that some people simply don't have enough skills, blah, 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 and can't, can't get along. What if we would have a real meritocracy, you know, where we actually war people for the kind of valuable work they do, then I think that many bankers would earn a negative salary while many nurses and teachers would be millionaires. Yeah, I think this is an important point. I suspect, and I, I really want to check out this paper, maybe you can send it to me um, afterwards and I'll put it also in the in the show notes, but I suspect that a lot of what makes a job feel useful or useless to someone 
and again, this is my hypothesis, it's not proven, is whether or not it is directly caring for other people. That if you're doing work where you can understand the effect it is having to make somebody else's life better very directly in the way a teacher can, or you have a really great um, discussion in your book about sanitation workers. Uh, And, you know, if the sanitation workers stop working tomorrow, like all cities (laughs) could go literally to shit. Um, it's yeah, a very exactly. like it's a yeah. it's not always a job that gets uh, all that much social esteem though sometimes it does but it is a job of of incredible utility very clear utility where I think the more attenuated people become in their work from its effect on on others and particularly its healthy effect on others I think the more they ultimately begin to wonder about its worth in the public sector has a lot of care jobs. I mean, depending on the country you're in, it's teachers, it's sanitation workers, it's, you know, people helping folks navigate a bureaucracy for better and sometimes for worse. It's often a lot of healthcare workers. It's soldiers. Um, and there's a lot of you can really understand um what those jobs do, whereas at kind of very, very high levels of the of the knowledge economy, sometimes you don't. And to 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 trace this back a little bit to the computers, I am very skeptical. Uh, and I continue to be very skeptical that the computers are going to replace the care jobs. And I think that we are very good when we want to be at inventing more care jobs. The analogy I always use here is we have a lot more yoga teachers um, now than we did a couple of years ago. And there's no reason to have any on some level, right? You can just go on YouTube and get a video from the best yoga teacher for free. But people go. And it seems to me that the future of our economy is just going to be much more deeply in service jobs. And if we're, and the question then is whether or not we're able to value them to the degree that we should. Because right now we have a lot of jobs that um, make sense and actually do a lot of work for people. But what we've done is we've cleaved them off from a sense of social status and respect and value. And we've attached that value <laughs> to these other jobs that people suspect exactly, not be exactly. creating yeah. anything for anyone. Yeah. And it's a kind of a sick equilibrium. And so if we assume that you know, the more valuable jobs are often in the public sector, right? You talked about education, about healthcare. And then if we also assume that, you know, the robots get better uh, and technology advances and our factories become more efficient, our farms become more efficient, then it's only logical that we'll start paying, you know, more money to, you know, the nurses and the teachers and the care workers, right? Because we can actually afford it. So I think that in a utopian society, it's only logical that the size of government increases. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's because technology advances and, the, the you know, the private sector becomes more efficient. So we can actually afford to have a larger public sector and have a better healthcare and better educational system, etc. Right. But, you know, I hear hardly any economist making this argument. They talk about uh, you know, this this concept of Baumol's disease about how uh, it's some kind of problem that government is not in- efficient enough compared to the public sector, uh, private sector. But I think that's actually the point, right? The point of the future is that we can have a huge amount of inefficiency because that's what makes life meaningful. And that's actually what, what makes care good, right? Good care is inefficient. You actually have the time to, you know, to talk so- to someone and, uh, you know, to have a meaningful relationship. If you want to make healthcare more efficient, you know, you usually destroy it, destroy it. That's such a I, I, I like the way you phrase that quite a bit. I want to draw something out here because I think that it's good to talk not just about the policies of, of your utopia, but the values. And what you're saying, I think, is that in your utopia, the way we value work and the way we value um, the things people do will not be based off of direct market contributions and considerations that 
there is some way we are going to assign value to things. It is very different than the way we do it now and is maybe more aligned with deeper human needs or aspirations. Well, I think the market can still help us. Um, this is one of, one of the most interesting and most important effects, I think, of, of a guaranteed basic income. You know, if you actually give those garbage collectors and nurses and teachers, if you give them you know, more bargaining power so that they can always fall back on their basic income, then they can always go on strike, right? And we know what happens when the garbage collectors go on strike. You know, it's a it's terrible disaster. We can't do without them. Um, so in a scenario where we will have a basic income, uh, their wages will simply have to go up. This is just standard economics, right? And then if you look at such a basic income society, then maybe all those people who are doing jobs that don't really matter, you know, the telemarketeers uh, might go on strike. Well, that's wonderful, you know, go on strike. I don't care. Uh, uh, their wages may have to go down a little bit. So I can imagine that in the long run, in a basic income society, the wages of people will much better reflect the social value that they contribute. I, I want to draw something out that you said there, because I've gone from being, I would say, relatively negative on UBI a couple of years back to feeling much more positively towards it. And, and this is one of the big arguments, which is what I would call the worker power argument. Um, as you said, if you have a, a UBI, it is a lot easier to decide not to take a job or to um, organize around your job to, to try to make it better. And, and something that has pushed my thinking on this a lot is this rise, particularly down in the retail sector of surveillance capitalism, where you have people working at McDonald's or an Amazon warehouse, and their every move is being clocked and managed, and they're doing just-in-time scheduling. And the way we're using technology to organize workers' lives is really it's not just dehumanizing, but it makes it quite impossible uh, oftentimes to have a, a normal life. There's a great, by the way, piece on Vox that I recommend everybody read from a journalist who's been um, looking at these jobs and doing them for the past couple of years called uh, – "If you want it's something like, if you want to talk about burnout, look at fast food workers. And if a world where people don't have to take the worst jobs and so the, those jobs either have to be automated or made better to attract people, um, I think would be – a better world. Um, but but I think one of the things people don't give enough credit to is technology is really robbing workers of power at the same time that unions are getting weaker. And those two trends together are, are really dangerous. Yes, I, I fully agree. Yeah. And and a couple of months ago, I was in the, in the US, you know, after uh, I had some uh, minor disagreement with uh, Tucker Carlson. And all these journalists wanted me to talk about communism or socialism versus capitalism, right? And to me, maybe that's my European perspective, but that just sounds so ridiculous, right? What we're talking about are, you know, just social democratic policies, you know, that are hugely popular, uh, that most people want, and in the countries that have actually tried them, you know, work really well, like Medicare for all, like proper public education, you know, like uh, basic worker rights, you know? So sometimes it felt to me, you know, touring the US with my book, you know, talking about universal basic income. I see a basic income. It should be the crowning achievement of social democracy, right? You also need uh, proper healthcare. You also need a quality public education that is accessible for everyone. And then, you know, uh, the last thing would be a guaranteed basic income. But it's, it's, uh, it's just, you know, standard, old-fashioned social democracy. If you look at um, you know, the reports that were written in the 40s and the 50s, the beverage plan, you know, the original blueprint for the British welfare state, 
they they already were thinking about a guaranteed basic income, you know, and that it should give you the freedom to uh, leave a terrible husband or leave a job that you don't like. It's uh, it's in that case, in that sense, it's not that revolutionary. Let me let me roll up my shoulders here, though, and offer the 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 the, the American counter arguments, right? The things you get as you you, you tour the country, and the, the big one I hear is that if you have a UBI, you know, let's say you have a fifteen thousand dollar a year UBI per person, um, people will not work. Uh, you will you will like rob the creative energy of the populace. Why mm -hmm. isn't that true, or is it true? Well, well, what I tried to do in the book, and what I've tried to do for the couple uh, past couple of years, is to see this as an empirical question. Right? You can just study this. You can just look at experiments that have been done basically since the seventies, and some of the most interesting experiments have actually been done in the U.S. You know, in the seventies, uh, the so-called negative income tax experiments. And you know, basically, what you see is the same thing over and over again. So sometimes there's a small reduction in working hours, but it's never really something to worry about. And it's always compensated by people doing other useful stuff. Uh, but you know what? As I said earlier in the conversation, I've always also come to realize that actually the debate isn't really about you know the evidence or about the experiments. It's about a particular view of human nature, right? So if you if you really feel it in your bones that people are just selfish and lazy, then I think no amount of, of scientific evidence is going to convince anyone. This was the problem with the Finnish experiment, for example. You know, they had this quite interesting experiment that ran for, I think, two years. The results were quite positive, so no reduction in working hours. People were happier. But still, these results were somehow interpreted by some people as, uh, you know, Finland tried it and it didn't work. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know what report those people read, but uh, you know, I think that just shows you that it's not really about the evidence. But but let's assume that my audience, um, it is just all about the evidence. I I, I think the evidence here is not well known, and and you have a good discussion of it. So I want to I want to draw you out on that a bit. What have we learned in in UBIs? Because we have had a number of pilots of them about what they what they do to people's interest in working and, and and how they not just whether they change it but but compositionally how they change it. So what happened at the end of the 60s is that almost everyone in the US believed that some form of guaranteed basic income was going to be implemented, right? So a guaranteed basic income is where you top up everyone's income as soon as they fall below the poverty line. And it's absolutely unconditional. So it's not like the earned income tax credit that only people who actually, uh, you know, who have a job get, but it's for everyone. So everyone believed that that was the future, Republicans, Democrats, and, uh, you know, it was actually Richard Nixon who had a modest proposal for a basic income that got through the House of Representatives twice and was killed in the Senate by Democrats, not because they didn't like the idea of a basic income, but because they wanted a higher basic income. So it's a pretty fascinating history, which just shows you, you know, as I said at the at the beginning of our conversation, how uh, how history shows you that things can be radically different. But anyway, at that time, people also said, we need to start experimenting with this. So there were huge experiments in the US. One of them, for example, was in Seattle, where uh, I think a thousand families uh, received this basic income. And there were lots of economists and sociolo sociologists studying the effects. Um, time and time again, what researchers find is that health improves, kids' uh, health, particularly mental health, also improves, kids do much better in school, etc. So all kinds of positive findings. In the Seattle experiment, there was one problem there. So what they found is that the divorce rate went up by 50%. You know, it seems as if, uh, you know, women were suddenly like, uh, hmm. I'm going to leave that uh, prick. 
<laughs> Terrible indictment of men. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so at that point, all the conservatives said, you know, we, we don't like basic income anymore because this will make women much too, uh, too independent. As a, as a quick note, if your view on a universal basic income is it may make your wife leave you and that is why you don't like it, I think there's more <laughs> yeah. searing self-examination <laughs> worth doing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, 10 years later, they found that they had made a statistical mistake. So in reality, the divorce rate did not go up. Uh, it's one of those yeah, fascinating examples of the coincidence of history, right? At the same time, you had a really nice experiment in a small town called Dauphin in Canada. Uh, for four years, uh, hundreds of families received a, a basic income. And again, with the same results, right? Crime goes down, kids do much better in school, health improves. In this case, they had a reduction in the hospitalization rate of, if I remember correctly, around 8%, uh, which is, you know, quite a lot. We spend a lot of money on healthcare. So uh, that was significant. The problem here was that there was a new conservative government uh, put into power in 1978, and they didn't really like the idea of giving people free money. So they said, you know what, we, we're going to stop this experiment. And there was no money left to analyze the results. And they all ended up in a warehouse attic somewhere. Everyone forgot about it. Uh, until 25 years later, there was a, ca a Canadian professor called Evelyn Forget, who found the records, did the analysis, and discovered that actually it was a, a huge success. Uh, so those are just some of the examples. Then there's also the whole literature around cash transfers that you're probably familiar with, right? So around the globe, NGOs, governments have been experimenting with just basically giving the poor money. And it turns out, uh, you know, the, the poor are the real experts on their lives. They, uh, they've got a lot of good ideas about what to do with that money, often much better ideas than white people in SUVs who come over to tell them what they need to do. So one thing that I think is interesting in, in all that data is that when people hear that UBI doesn't do a lot to change working patterns, I think it feels unintuitive. And then if you think about it for two seconds, it's actually pretty straightforward. I mean, most people, these UBIs tend to be small. Um, you know, the ones that, that, that people consider are often about $1,000 a month um, in, in current American dollars. So you're talking about $12,000 a year. And most people do not want to make $12,000 a year. People work and they scrap and they fight to, to make more money and advance up the ladder. And it's a very um, – it's a strange vision, I think, of people's work ethics and their work motivations just given what we see around us to imagine that some kind of basic living standard – would, would rob people of interest in working. Now, I could imagine that argument mm -hmm. be made to people with really terrible jobs, but then maybe people with really terrible jobs either should be paid a lot more <laughs> or, sh or shouldn't have exactly. to do them. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I yeah. think it's like a fascinating, I think there's something very fascinating underneath the idea that'll, that'll rob people of their energy to work, both related to your point about uh, a vision of human nature that is fundamentally selfish and, and, and lazy, uh, but also just, I mean, look around, right? Like that's, people work for status. They work for meaning. I mean, there's a lot going into our, they, they work because they want more money than they have. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not clear yeah. to me what UBI would do to disrupt most of that. Well, look at prisons. So how do they punish prisoners? Well, often by saying you can't work. <laughs> you can't work in the kitchen anymore. You just have to, uh, you know, stay in your cell. I think that people just want to contribute, right? Uh, people uh, want to do something meaningful in their lives. Why would you want to organize all your institutions around the 1% the, the of people who are lazy instead of around the 99% who actually want to contribute something, right? So I'm not saying lazy people don't exist. I just think they're relatively hard to find. 
Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for The Gray Area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Talk to me about the case for a 15-hour work week. Okay, yeah. So this goes back to a very famous essay that, uh, well, some people are a bit sick of nowadays because there have been so many op-eds. So <laughs> anyway, it's a... <laughs> I think this is one of the most interesting essays in the history of economics. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's an essay by the British economist, Joe Maynard Keynes, written in 1930. It's just eight pages long. It's, it's, uh, it's indeed uh, something that people should read. You can just Google it, find the PDF. Um, and the title of the essay is Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. So... In that essay, Keynes basically makes two predictions. He says, uh, in the first place, he says, well, we'll probably get a lot richer in the future, right? So he was talking about 2030, and he said, well, we'll probably be four to eight times as rich as we are now if we just extrapolate you know, the current economic growth. Um, turns out he was actually more or less right about that. I think we're now five to eight, uh, six times as rich as we were in 1930. Then the second argument, the second prediction that uh, Keynes made was that we'll use that wealth uh, to start working less because that's what we have been doing basically since 1850, you know, having economic growth, having more technology, uh, having more efficient farms and factories so that you can actually uh, have a shorter and shorter and shorter working week. Uh, so again, he just extrapolated into the future and he said, well, if you then look at 2030, we'll probably have a working week of about 15 hours. So that's the famous 15 hour working week of, of John Maynard Keynes. The interesting thing here is that it sounds a bit crazy, but actually it was utterly mainstream back then. Up until the 60s and the 70s, almost all the sociologists and philosophers were all talking about you know, the, the real challenge of the future, which was going to be boredom, right? 
what are we going to do at the end of history when there are no jobs left? And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful essay that was written by uh, Isaac Asimov, you know, the great science fiction writer. I think this was uh, in the 60s in the New York Times. And he was asked the question, um, you know, how does the future 50 years from now look? And he said, you know, the biggest challenge is going to be boredom and the biggest uh, profession is going to be uh, the psychiatrist because they'll have to treat all those uh, people who are suffering from the symptoms of boredom. Um, wow, something uh, different happened. But that's uh, that's the the fascinating question. There's a, a, a sci-fi story I love, and I want to say it's an Ursula Le Guin story, but if I'm wrong, please do not rise up on the internet and kill me, everybody. Um, <laughs> but it, it's this beautiful story where it is a widowed wife of a composer is talking to an, an elderly senator, and it's in the future. And it's in this future where there's not that many jobs, so about 50% of the population self-identifies and, and, and employs as artists. And what the senator is backing is a bill that would extend copyright on artistic works into perpetuity. And this woman comes to him and, and she says, you can't do this. You cannot do this. And he says, why? This would be great for you. You you would keep making the money from your husband's works. And she ends up revealing in the story that um, her husband wrote this composition for her. And he thought it was like one of the greatest works he'd ever done. And then it turned out it was a Beatles composition. And the idea was that there are many, many musical pieces you can do, but it's not infinite. And in a world where people are, are going to be artists, if you make it impossible to copy, then you're going to take the meaning out of people's lives. And, and I've always thought it's like a great, it's one of those stories that's always stuck with me as an idea of, you know, if you if you want to, if you're going to have a future in which there's going to be a lot less what we think of as labor, people are going to find their meaning in places where meaning is more constructed, where it's not sort of like, I move these bricks and now they form a house, but into things that other people find meaning in. Putting aside the copyright question, uh, I've, I've just always loved it. That, by the way, this this reminds me of uh, a policy that we had in the 70s and the 80s in the Netherlands where artists could get a basic income, you know, and basically the only thing they had to do was produce art. And I guess there was some kind of commission of other artists and painters and whatever who judged whether the art was good enough. The problem with this basic income for artists was that it made artists much too productive. So up until this day, cities and municipalities have this problem that we have, you know, warehouses full of art from the 70s and the 80s, and we have no idea what to do with it, right? That they just were so incredibly productive because of this basic income. <laughs> that I, I love that. It's such a, it is a weird cultural thing about America to me. We love all of these WPA, Works Progress Administration, murals and pieces and like the Art Deco buildings. Um, uh, and I'm probably getting that terminology wrong, actually. But we love the art that emerged out of the WTA and the, and the New Deal era, this kind of public art, this idea that you were going to integrate art into the way we built our public spaces. And we do so much less of it now. There's so much we we seem to know that we liked that we have forgotten now. I mean, we still do fund art through the, the National Endowment for the Arts, but we don't um, integrate it in the way we we used to into our public infrastructure and into an idea of like the public life and the public good. Even when we fund it, it's much more private art. And it just, it strikes me as baffling and short-sighted given that people will, when they're traveling somewhere, they will go look at these murals. They will go check out these buildings. And of course, they're beautiful. Um, it, it's, I don't know, I don't, we're, we're, we're short-sighted. But I want to push on this actually to, to take the other side of it for a minute because the reason there's been, as you say, this endless discussion of this Keynes essay is that he was right about the income and wrong about what people would do. 
we actually do have roughly the the the, the income he predicted we'd have. And instead we work um, – I don't know if it's literally longer than ever, but we work long hours. And in America in particular, the people who make the most money work the longest hours and they seem to <laughs> they seem to just sort of go up and up and up at the amount they work as they go up the income ladder, which is historically very unusual. Rich people used to be um, – they, they used to the prize their leisure and show off how indolent they were. And so this goes to one of these human nature questions, which is you're arguing for a 15-hour work week, but maybe that's not what people want. Well, if you – Look at the graph here of you know how the the length of the working week has developed since the 1930s. Turns out that Keynes was right for the first 40, 50 years, right? So for a couple of decades after he made his prediction, the working week was shrinking. It was you know it went from like I don't know 50 hours to 40 hours or something like that on average. And sure, there are differences between countries. You know, I personally live in the country, uh, the Netherlands, that has the shortest working week on earth. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it has been relatively stable. It's a bit misleading, though, to look at individual working hours because, you know, since the uh, 70s and 80s, a lot of women obviously uh, entered the job market, right? So it could be the case that in the 50s, there was just one male breadwinner working six days. And nowadays you have two people who are husband and wife who are both working four days. So if you add that up, that's actually eight days. So they're working more, even though on average people work four days instead of six days. So it's, sometimes these statistics are a bit misleading. But in general, I, I think you can say that um, it's all just about political choices, right? It's not about laws of history. I think maybe this is what Keynes got wrong, is that he imagined that this was sort of a, a force of economics that just would just go on. Uh, but it turns out that it's actually about real political battles that have uh, to be fought. And uh, since the 80s, especially in the US, workers started losing those battles. I don't want to say the political battles don't figure into this because, of course, they do. But I don't think that explains all of this trend. I mean, you and I, I expect both work quite a bit more than 15 hours a week. And we could both probably cut our work hours down a lot and still make ends meet. But we don't. I mean, we were talking earlier about the data that shows that people are, you know, work longer hours as they go up the income scale. So they're not – the theory that Keynes had was that you would trade this extra income for time. But instead, people trade the extra income for things or trying to keep up with each other maybe. Um, or they trade them for status, uh, you know, that you, you want to be seen as making a lot of money and, and having a, a high-powered job and being useful. And I'm sure there are political choices that are implicated in all this, but but a lot of these seem to be cultural or even human nature questions. That there's something about what people want and how they want to be seen by others, and 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 how they want to be in relative competition with each other. That I don't know that you can just pass a law on. Here's what I would have done differently if I could write the book again. I think I would have a more explicit discussion of what work actually is. Because if you go back to, say, the 19th century, you'll look at, well, look at someone like Charles Darwin, right? One of the greatest scientists ever. And uh, he was basically doing this not as work, but as leisure, right? And But nowadays, we consider scientific research, we consider it work. So our definition of what work is has expanded quite a bit. Um, what I'm arguing for in my book is that we should move towards a society where you know, way more people have the freedom to do work that is actually meaningful. And maybe in such a society where everyone has that opportunity, we won't call it work anymore. You know, we'll just call it play. Because let's be honest, we're not, we're both not doing this podcast for the money, right? 
Oh no, I well, am. I'm. It's, it's yeah. well, maybe extreme, some of those ads, extreme but. financial <laughs> financial incentives that get me to do this. Exactly, exactly, right. So you know, I've I've got this 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 question a lot. You know, uh, well, you don't work fifteen hours, so uh, see that this proves your point. It's it's I, th I think really about how you define work, and obviously, you know, as a as a writer with uh, with a little bit of success, then you get the freedom to do whatever you want, right? You have your basic income, and that's exactly the kind of society I would want for everyone. There have been countries that have tried to do something in this direction through laws. I think most prominently, uh, it was France that did a 35-hour work week, if I'm remembering this correctly. And it's had a little bit less effect, as I understand it, than, than people expected it to. But do you want to talk a little bit about what have been the examples of trying to do this or, or how even one would do this? Like when you talk about a 15-hour work week, is that a policy or like a like a cultural expectation? Um, and, and if so, what is it based on? Well, I have a discussion in my book about the effects of working less on productivity. And then the issue is obviously how do you define productivity, right? Economists often uh, define it just as a productivity is the, the amount of money basically or value you contribute towards GDP, gross domestic product. Well, I think GDP is a terrible indicator of progress. But anyway, if you look at those studies, uh, what you actually see is that working less doesn't really matter. <laughs> you can move from a 60-hour to a 40-hour working week, and uh, often your productivity hardly declines because you become more effective in those hours that you actually work. This was discovered by the great capitalists, right? So it was Henry Ford in the 1920s who, you know, who, who got his workers on a 40-hour work week. And uh, back then, uh, you know, all the other big entrepreneurs were saying like, what are you doing? This is socialist craziness. Uh, but a couple of years later, they, uh, they all did the same thing because they discovered, you know what, you just get the same productivity and your workers are happier. So um, yeah, I think that we often overplay uh, the, the argument that, you know, working more also makes you more productive. Often it's the other way around. So I, that, that all makes sense to me. But but again, sort of how would you operationalize this? Is the idea that you would have a law that says nobody can do paid labor more than 15 hours a week? I mean, in the utopia, what, what creates a 15-hour work week? Well, there are a lot of different policies you'd need, I guess. Uh, there are simple things like paternity leave, for example. The effects of that have been studied quite a bit. And what you see is that uh, dads start, do, start doing more unpaid work. And it actually provides women with the opportunity to do a bit more paid work, uh, which would be good. Indeed, you can just have simple laws against it, you know, that say, you know, you can't work more than 50 or say 60, uh, 60 hours a week, you know, laws against overtime that is not paid, all those kind of things, just standard uh, workplace laws that, that can be uh, relatively uh, effective. Then you can have obviously unions who bargain for it. So unions often say we want higher wages, but they could also say we want to work, uh, you know, 5% less in, uh, in hours or something like that. And unions used to do this way more than they do now. I, I guess one question I have about it when I, when I try to think about how it play out in a world where you had things like a UBI is there's a difference between the freedom to work less and the mandate to work less. Maybe in some conceptual way, and I'll just use myself as the example here because I don't want to speak for others, it would be better if I only worked 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week or 30 hours a week, but I wouldn't want to, right? I, I like certainly in my in, in, in my tendencies, I, I, I do a lot of work because I you know care about the work I do and I'm made happy by it and you know I feel like it at, at its best is a form of service and you know those things are, are, are important to me. So I'm always 
I like the idea. I want it to be possible for people to work a lot less than they do because not everybody has the privilege of having a job they love. But I'm always a little turned off by things where you couldn't work more. It it, it seems like you need something that is a culture and a possibility, not a policy and a stricture. Well, that's a good point. And I also think that you know, it has become quite meaningless just to look at paid work alone, right? And this is true for both the US and Europe. People have been spending so much more time on their kids nowadays than 20, 30 years ago, right? So a stay-at-home mom in the 70s spent less time on her kids than a working mother nowadays. Does. It's, it's pretty pretty bizarre. You know, it's, it's, I think the double amount of time that we spend on our kids nowadays. Um, is that work? Is that leisure? Well, it's, uh, it's hard to say. Yeah, I don't I I both very much understand why these hours are put into these discussions, but I I don't like it. I do recognize that a lot of the way we approach parenting now has gone way up and people approach it more as a job and a task and I did this great podcast with Alison Gopnik on carpenters and gardeners. And yet there's also this part of me that says I really don't like the idea that being with your child has been redefined as work uh in these conversations. That is not the work part of my day. Let, let me put it that way. Um, and I, I don't know, I think it's very much a part of burnout and, you know, there's doctor's appointments and, you know, over administrative overhead and like a million things that, that, that make it hard. But there's something here, which I think it probably mirrors into the work conversation too, where our categories here are just not great, right? I, you know, what Darwin was doing when he was a, a scientist of leisure, I wouldn't call it play. It was a kind of work, but maybe it wasn't labor or something like that. And there's parts of parenting that are that I would think of as work. It's like, I wish I didn't have to do that. And then there's parts of parenting that I wish I had all the time in the world to do that. And it seems to me that the cut here is about things that are sort of meaningful and nourishing and sustaining versus things that are not, right? In some ways, this is why I like David Graeber's idea of bullshit jobs so much. What is the work you are doing that you feel is meaningless or separately that you kind of hate? But that doesn't cut necessarily along like work or parenting. The the, the categories here are very are are, are very are very weird. Um, we they, they seem like they should be normal because we're so normalized to them. But you would imagine in a in a, in my utopia, I think people would think more about how time makes them feel and less about these sort of binary: are you at work or are you at home? Are you parenting? The the, the categories are weaker than I think we give them credit for. Yeah, and and then if you just look at the. Uh sort of the ideological history of this thing called work, you know, often what we call work is paid work that contributes towards GDP. Then if you delve into the history of GDP, uh, you know, I found this, uh, you know, pretty bizarre, actually, um, because you could obviously include unpaid work in GDP. So that actually, you know, if people start do spending less time with their kids and working more in a crappy job that, you know, GDP would won't increase so much or actually decrease. Um, Turns out that back when economists had these discussions in the 70s and I think the 80s about, you know, how do we define economic growth? They said, well, we can include unpaid labor, but, you know, I don't have to do it because it's mostly being done by by women. Right. So it's a very it's a highly ideological definition of work that that economists chose back then. And up until this day, we still use this indicator of economic progress, you know, it's called GDP. That is uh you know, <laughs> I think it's totally outdated. There's a wonderful book about this, by the way, called uh, GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History by Diane Coyle. Uh, a really great economist uh, that really opened my mind to how this sort of this indicator that we use all the time, how it has this history. And there were there are so many choices in it that are not. Well, we could have made different choices. 
in my utopia, I would actually want to take care work much more seriously. I, I'm, I appreciate that you brought that up. And it comes up a lot in the the universal basic income question. Um, Annie in her book has a really great chapter on, uh, on, on care work and how it's been uncompensated, how it remains uncompensated, and the way that UBI could be one way of redressing that at least a bit. But you know, if we're if we're blowing open the windows of our mind here, I w- I would want to go a lot further than that. I don't think that because you're staying at home with a kid or you're caring for an aging parent, that your the way society should look at you is well, you shouldn't starve on the street. So here's your UBI. <laughs> I mean, that should be valued. It's a wild thing to me how much we undervalue the utterly core work of keeping the human species going and learning and capable and dignified and clothed and it, it just it's like in in my utopia where you're valuing things differently we would value care work very very differently and you know i don't it doesn't seem obvious to me that you couldn't have a system where that was somehow um uh, salaried out by the state or what it, you know or by the collective or you know whatever your whatever your units are there i mean the idea that the market uh offers rewards right now and awards right now for labor doesn't mean you couldn't do it in other ways and obviously through tax credits and earned income stuff and so on we do so i would like to see care work treated as a job that is at least at the median wage um, and how you would have to structure society to do that is an interesting question, but it's certainly not an impossible thing. It is simply a different thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I I really like these these studies that show that since the seventies and the eighties, a lot of people who used to go on and uh, you know work for government agencies, you know, wanted to, to become an astronaut or cure cancer or you know build a flying car, that many of these. Ivy League graduates, you know, from the best universities, move to Silicon Valley and to to Wall Street. There's uh, there's some really interesting data on, you know, what happened to, to example for uh, Harvard uh, to Harvard graduates, and you know, we're so often obsessed with, uh, you know, do people have the right skills, right? Do they have the 21st century skills? Did you, did we educate them properly? But we should be asking the question: What are people actually doing with those skills? You know, <laughs> is it actually valuable what they do? I was recently talking to Kasparov, you know, the great chess player, and he he mentioned to me that you know when he went to university, people wanted to become astronauts. They wanted to, you know, build things, cure things, that kind of thing. And it's one of the great tragedies of our time that we're wasting so much talent. There are so many people, you know, working as bankers, for example, that are just they're too smart to be bankers. You know, we can't, we can't afford to waste their talent, especially if you th- think about something like climate change. Right. There's so many engineers who start building these financial products that just destroy wealth. We, we, we can't afford that. You know, they need to be thinking about, you know, sustainable technologies, solutions. They need to need to be building, <laughs> uh, you know, walls against the sea, that kind of thing. Just an entirely different discussion about what wealth is, what work is, who are the real wealth creators? When do you really contribute? Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, 
or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to like offer one little other rant on our previous topic just because I don't always get the opportunity to offer this rant. But I am very frustrated by the conversation that emerges around the gender wage gap where people will say, well, you know, if you really look at the gender wage gap, at least a, a lot of it has to do – I mean one, we know a lot of it is a motherhood penalty, right? If you if you have a kid, like the wage gap begins to, to hit you with very deep force. And it's like, well, when you look at them, the mothers are not working as many hours. So really there is no gender wage gap. It's just this hours and professions question because also um, people who need flexibility or predictability to be parents and or to be the primary caregiver will enter into a different field or not take the partnership or whatever it might be. And so, ha, the gender wage gap is a myth and all you social justice warriors should shut the fuck up. And I'm always like so agog. It's like, You've not explained away the gender wage gap. You have identified its mechanism. And the idea that the society we are constructing is if in addition to doing work, you are also caring for children, you should take a wage penalty is wild. It is wild. And it's always made by the people – like this argument is always made by the people who think of themselves as family values first and natalists and – it just blows my mind. Um, but I just like planting my flag on this, that if you are working a hard job and caring for a kid, society should not be penalizing you for that in terms of like what value you are putting in and so what you are getting back in terms of how you can live. It should be rewarding you for that. And like when you have identified this, um, you've not identified that the gender wage gap is a myth. You've identified that like this is how it is functioning. It is in terms of what we value. Um Rant over. Thank you for thank you for attending my TED talk. <laughs> well, I fully agree. You know, one other thought I had is that, you know, we so often talk about innovation, about building new new things. You know, I was I was even doing it about you know how we need to cure cancer or whatever. But actually, most important work is caring, or you could also say maintenance. You know, just yeah. making sure that things don't get broken. Yeah, you have a factory that you know produces a lot of cups to drink something from, but you wash it like. A thousand times, right? 
So that's the maintenance is much more important than actually producing the thing. But we're always focused on production instead of maintenance. This is a huge thing. And, and I really would recommend people. I did podcast with the artist Jenny O'Dell. Um, and we, it's a long discussion of maintenance art in that that I thought was really interesting. And she talks about an artist, for instance, who's embedded for a long time now, I think 10 or 15 years. She's an artist in residence in the New York Sanitation Department. And she does art about honoring the contribution of sanitation workers. And, you know, and, and, the, and she has a whole theory about maintenance art versus production art and art that is about a culture of life versus art that is about a culture of death. And I think it's a really it's a really interesting model and one of the, you know, there are moments, I'm not a great appreciator of art, but there are moments when I think art can open your eyes to um, some very strange things in your own society and that's been one of them for me. Um, I want to move us though uh, to open borders. Make the case for me. Okay, so I said earlier that if you want to start thinking about your utopia for the future, you got to start with the injustices of today. And I think you can easily make the argument that borders are, you know, the biggest source of inequality worldwide, right? So 60% uh, of your income is dependent simply on the fact where you were born, right? Something that you didn't choose, you know, you were just lucky or unlucky. And most of the arguments we have against immigration, you know, they'll take our jobs, they're all lazy, they're all criminals, they're all terrorists, et cetera, et cetera. Again, if you look at the data, uh, often it's the other way around. And um, even more so, we have a lot of immigration policies nowadays in the US, but also in Europe that are actually counterproductive. One thing that really blew my mind is that actually if you build higher walls, if you, uh, you know, as the US did in the 70s and the 80s, when it basically militarized the wall with Mexico, you get more illegal immigrants because they still come, but they don't want to leave anymore because the journey is simply so harsh uh, and difficult. So you only want to make it once. So yeah, it's, it's both a, sort of a utopian argument I make in that book. I think that in a sort of a, a really utopian, much better, much more just society, you know, borders simply don't exist. But there are also a lot of practical short-term arguments you can make in favor of, well, a bit more openness. So this is a place where, number one, I'm very, on a values level and an emotional level, very pro-open borders. And I'm quite pessimistic about our ability as human beings to sustain them. And so let me let me do a little bit of the pushing here and, 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 and see what you think. So to me, the last couple of years, the last decade in, in both American and European politics has been uh, like a flashing red warning of the dangers of immigration to political stability. I mean, you see it in the EU, and I, I'd say that both the Syrian refugee crisis and just internal EU migration has to some degree imperiled that project and certainly pushed Britain towards Brexit and put the thing off of the, the idyllic path many hoped it would be on. And certainly in America, Donald Trump rode anti-immigration uh, sentiment to the White House. And I mean, literally every day is another reminder of that tendency in the human psyche. And I see it around me and people I talk to and, and, and people I love, actually. So one of the things that I am more sensitized to than I think I used to be is just you know, there are folks who look at difference and look at change, and I'm one of them, and and see optimism and possibility for shared strength. And there's a lot of people who look at it, and and there's a lot of backlash, and there's a lot of rearing back, and the populist right rises up. And so I'm very, I've become, I think, more rather than less skeptical that we could sustain politically very high levels of immigration. So I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear the optimistic case for this. I'm a bit more optimistic because what I saw, for example, during the Syrian refugee crisis is that for every refugee that came in in the Netherlands, 
there were two volunteers, right? So <laughs> there were there were waiting lists for volunteers. There were actually volunteers who were a bit, bit angry <laughs> that they, they they couldn't help in any way because there were too many many people that wanted to help. If you looked at what happened in Germany, right? So Angela Merkel, the chancellor, said at one point, "We're shuffling us. We can do this." And people predicted that it would be her downfall, right? But last time I checked, she's still in power. She let in a million refugees. So, but there has been a very strong strengthening of the of the far right parties in Germany. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's still, you know, compared to the U.S., it's all, uh, you know, very, sure. <laughs> very, very mild. I don't know. I think that you can actually uh, make almost a, a patriotic or, a, I don't know, a nationalistic case in favor of immigration and openness. And I think that's exactly what Angela Merkel did back then. She basically said, "Look, we're Germans. We can do this. We're just better. We're better than the French. We're better than the Dutch. We're better than the British." We can actually handle this. We're shuffling us. And it turns out that actually most Germans believed her. And uh, sure, there's a lot of press around this, and especially international press that really wants to focus on, you know, the rise of the populists. And to be honest, I also think there's a lot of bad reporting on this. You know, from my perspective, for example, during the Dutch, Dutch elections two, three years ago, uh, all the British and American press was totally obsessed with Geert Wilders, who's our own, uh, sort of our own Donald Trump. And they were like, oh, is he going to win the election or not? But winning the election in Holland means that you get around 15% of the vote. And then there are five other political parties who also get around 15% of the vote. So it doesn't really mean anything. And then if you don't want to co cooperate uh, with other political parties, you don't get anything done. So uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's very tempting to see sort of the similarities between countries when it comes to, you know, the things that we worry about, xenophobia, inequality. But actually, if you zoom out a little bit, there are real differences as well, which means there are political choices that can be made, you know, to focus on inequality. Inequality has gone up a huge amount in the US, quite a bit in the UK, but not much actually in, in the Netherlands, you know, before tax uh, income inequality, uh, has gone up, but after tax, not really, because the government is basically doing its job. So these are not like inequality going up or xenophobia. They're not just laws of history. They're not automatic processes, but societies can respond in different ways. And I think that we sometimes sort of overestimate the, the, the similarities that are going on uh, about things that are going on around the globe, and we don't have enough uh, eye for the differences. I, so I want to premise this before I say it, that I believe most countries, not all, but most, can handle more immigrants than they currently take in. And certainly, I believe that's true for, for America. So I'm a very big fan of some of the, the plans now that Democrats are putting out that actually straightforwardly argue for more legal migration. Um, Elizabeth Warren has a plan like this, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Julian Castro. So when I say this, it isn't to say one couldn't have more. But but I, I do want to hold on the open borders thing for a moment because I don't, I don't really believe the story is as optimistic as, as as you give it credit for. I mean, Germany, I, I, I might forget, I don't remember these numbers off the top of my head, but I believe they took in something like 100,000 refugees. Well, a million, I think, about in total. So it was a million. All right. So then, you know, so then I'm, I'm, I'm wrong about that bit, but it wasn't a throwing open of the borders. There's still many more refugees than can get anywhere. That's true for the Netherlands. It's true for Germany. It's true for all of Europe. Um, there are many more people who would like to live here than are, are, are allowed to. And I think the, the sense is that if you really did throw open the borders, if you just made it a choice people had, 
the the backlash should be um, deeply overwhelming. Zach Beecham, who's a colleague of mine at Vox, has looked at the sort of range of academic studies on this, and there's just an exceptionally high correlation between immigration and the rise of far-right populist parties. I mean, that is, over years, what drives that. It's not economics across Europe. It's clearly what's driving that in America. And so, yeah, I'm within a band, right? I think you can handle it and you can take the hit as Angela Merkel has and say, okay, you know, we'll have some strength in the far right, but it's worth it for this for this humanitarian operation to succeed. And I want to say I'm coming at this because I want to believe that open borders is more possible than I than I currently believe it to be. But it just seems to me that people are very attuned to difference. They're very attuned to ideas of cultures changing and and um, you know, people who they've decided are not like them. And the processes by which you're able to integrate people into a we are sometimes really powerful and sometimes very bloody. <laughs> and I don't know. I when I see some of the other things on the list here, like UBI, I I don't imagine you could have open borders and a UBI in any country that I can at least conceive of um, in any sort of near-term sense. And so I actually worry about the tensions between parts of the project, right? That if if you believe, as you do, and certainly as I do, that immigration, more immigration is a very important form of justice, and you also believe that you should have you know, Medicare for all or UBI or, or, or things of that nature, you get into sort of a tension there where um, you know, there's always this uh, attitude to build a wall around the welfare state. When Obamacare was coming up, there was the member of Congress who yelled that during a speech Obama was giving to Congress, you're lying when Obama said his plan doesn't cover undocumented immigrants. There is this tension where people don't want to be too generous if they feel that generosity is going to go to people who aren't like them. So how do you handle that? Well, I think it's important to emphasize that that tension is not specific to UBI, right? We already have it with the current welfare state and with our current democracy. So you always have to answer the question, when are you going to give immigrants access to the welfare states? When they do they get the right to vote anyway? So and you can have lots of positions on that. You can say, well, people need to learn the language first or learn something about the culture or whatever. And I'm open to all of that. Uh, actually, I would even say that you need to you, you could make your make the argument that we need to create some kind of second rung citizenship. Is that an English word? Second rung? I think you would say in English more second class citizenship. Okay, yeah. Second class citizenship. And you would say people can actually come and work, but you don't give them immediate access to UBI, universal healthcare, etc. And when they pay, you know, a certain amount of taxes or whatever, learn the language, only then you give them access. Now I know there are a lot of people who say, well that's horrible. Then you have this second class citizenship. Yeah, but you know what? We now have third class citizenship where people aren't even allowed to come, right? So actually second class citizenship would be an improvement here. Don't don't get don't get me wrong. I fully agree with you that that open borders is the, well, it's the most utopian part of my book. It's maybe morally the best part of my book, but practically the worst. Um but but it's really uh you zoom out a bit and you ask what are the biggest injustices of to, of today and say two centuries from now. How will we look back on today? And probably borders, uh, together with the way we treat animals, will rank very high, uh, you know, among our biggest crimes. I appreciate you bringing up the way we treat animals in there. Um, but I do want to I do want to draw out something you were just talking about because I think this is actually important. I I am very sensitive to the arguments about second class citizenship, and I'm also sensitive to them because there's an argument, and Raihan Salam has been on on the podcast making uh, an argument of this form that if you do something like that. You also um, make it harder for people to assimilate. You create bigger differences. You create more inequality in society. So there are drawbacks to this and trade-offs to it. 
But I, I, I like the way you put that a lot. I think that recognizing that second-class citizenship in a place might be better than third-class citizenship where you can't get into the place at all. Um, sometimes I think people are a little too... I don't know that they they're they're underestimating how bad the current system is for the people who can't move freely um, such that uh, making it so they continue to not be able to because you can't get um, full uh, participation in the fruits of the society that they're joining is not it's not a it's not a just equilibrium right it would be better if you could get that but to but to then have nothing be the answer because you can't is not a is not a situation that makes things better for anyone yeah yeah and and I want to make one other point by the way. After the election of Trump and after Brexit, you had all these discussions among pundits. And I think Vox.com also had a lot of uh, pieces about it, about is this about economics or is it about culture? You know, is it about are these people poor or are they racist? Right. And, and I think that generally uh, the people who argued that they, uh, you know, that's all about racism basically won it. Right. Because indeed, most of the data shows that, you know, Trump daters on average, they're not poor. You know, they're reasonably well off. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we or people on the left often like to believe that if you just give people a basic income, they suddenly become, you know, very nice and progressive and open minded. It doesn't really seem to be the case. Uh, but I think that actually that sort of that discussion or that opposition between uh, culture versus economy just gets it wrong. It's really about how you frame things. Uh, one of the things that I try to do in the book is to use sort of right wing language to defend progressive ideals, right? So one example, poverty. Often when people on the left talk about poverty, they say, uh, oh, the poor, they're so, uh, well, we need to help them, right? Uh, it's so terrible to live in poverty. Let's help them to make better choices in their lives. It's a it's very paternalistic language. What I try to do in the book is to use more right-wing entrepreneurial language and say, hey, poverty is just expensive. We can't afford it. Uh, if we just completely eradicate poverty, that's an investment that pays for itself. Right. So it's a different kind of language. You could do the same thing with patriotism. Right. So what Angela Merkel did is she made a patriotic argument like we're great. We're Germans. We can do this in favor of openness. Right. I think, yeah, especially politicians on the on the left could, could do so much better here. It's funny. So when when you make those arguments that you know ending poverty is investment that we can't afford not to make, I think that's a very weak position to argue from. Because as soon as somebody puts forward a study showing that's not true, well then you're screwed. It, it the thing that I like in your book a lot, and 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 the kind of rhetoric that I resonate to in a utopian fashion around this, is actually just that it's not about being nice and it's not about helping people. It's about a vision of what society should be. Right, it's about human dignity. It's about giving people the platform on which to stand to to live a flourishing life. It's not an investment, and it's not a um, form of charity. It's a form of constructing a society that we collectively think is just. And you know, not not to argue against type here, but I, I worry you're you're falling into the trap us neoliberals have set for you <laughs> <laughs> when you're arguing that well, you know, if we if we have a universal basic income, maybe people won't go to the ER as often. And, you know, if they don't go to the ER as often, then you'll have healthcare costs go down. It's, I don't know. Like, I think that, I think the best argument for why you should not have poverty is that it's in a rich society, it is unjust to have poverty. Sure. Um, sure. And it's not the way you want to construct it. And I really feel this about child poverty, where I'm just like every day, I mean, this is again, I, I sort of want to credit this argument to my, to my wife who makes it more eloquently than I do. But Every day you have child poverty in America is a day you are choosing to have child poverty in America. Like it could end tomorrow 
And like we have chosen that like children are going to be in poverty. And like that is not because they don't work hard enough. <laughs> and it is not because like they did bad in school. And it's not because they've done anything to deserve it. It is because we have chosen to let them languish there when we could change it. Like we have that, we have that power and that capacity. And of course, you know, that question of how you want to imagine your responsibilities to both people in and out of your country is a morally hard one. And the effective altruists have a lot of views on where this does or doesn't stop. And I recognize that it can be hard to draw the line, but I don't know. I think the good thing, I, what I like about more utopian thinking is that you can just sort of say, if you were, if you were building it from scratch, you just wouldn't build it this way. You, you would know it was wrong. There's this piece that Richard Rorty wrote, I think at the end of the 90s, about that the problem with progressives or the academia is that they're not patriotic. And he makes this argument that if you want to feel ashamed for your country, right, and there's, a, you know, there's quite a lot of reason these days if you are you know, against poverty or racism to feel ashamed of. Uh, you know, it's true for me in the Netherlands and it's probably true for, uh, in America as well. But you can only be ashamed of something that you're proud of as well. Right, because you feel a connection to this thing, you feel American or you feel Dutch. Right, you want to improve it. I think that is sort of the same thing as what happens when I say bankers are too smart to be working in banking. You know, I compliment them first. I'm saying you're smart, and then I say, well, you're too smart. You know, you can't waste your life on this. Um, it's just just a different way of of making the argument and trying to help people change their views. And uh, I've experienced uh, experimented quite a bit with this because I'm really interested in not only convincing people who are already on my side, uh, you know, but also sort of bursting the bubble and convincing people who are more, I don't know, centrist or even right wing of these arguments. And then it's, 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 it can get really interesting to try this sort of moral reframing, you know, using a different kind of language to make the same point to, uh, yeah, sort of uh, be politically more effective. I think it's a good place to, to bring this in for, for a landing. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, well, obviously, I have to start with uh, David Graeber's books. Uh, so those are bullshit jobs. And Depth, the first 5,000 years, uh, he's, he's really one of my favorite anthropologists. I think he's one of the most interesting thinkers of today. You know, very, very highly original and, uh, you know, really helps you think in a very different way about wealth about economy what really matters etc i think that actually especially after the financial after the financial crisis anthropologists were the most interesting thinkers about what was going on so the second book would be rebecca solnit uh well all her books but maybe specifically a paradise built in hell where she talks about disasters and what happens after disasters you know specifically about what happened after katrina and uh, she basically shows that what you get is not this orgy of violence, but what you actually get is an explosion of altruism. So it's a, it's a very strong case that she makes there for a much more optimistic view of human nature. Now, the third book I would recommend now is, uh, and we haven't talked much on this, maybe, maybe another podcast, uh, Mariana Matsukato, The Entrepreneurial State, you know, where she shows that actually throughout history, many of the most important innovations think about the internet or one of the most wonderful examples she gives in the book is the iPhone. There's, a, there's a, a chapter in the book called The State Behind the iPhone. She basically shows that so many of the most important innovations have been funded by the state and that we need a much bolder, much more courageous state in the era of climate change, you know, that is willing to make much bigger investments uh, in the future. I think that is a terrific book. She's probably the most important economist right now in the world alive today. 
Rucker Bregman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Rucker Bregman for, for being here. I love the idea of thinking about utopia. And I was happy he brought up at the end uh, animal suffering because when I think about utopia, when I think about the society I would like to see us be and the values I would like to see us have, uh, a little bit of a wider circle of compassion is core there. I don't know. I, I It's funny. I was doing uh, somebody else's podcast the other day. I got asked about my vision for utopia. And it's hard. It is a hard way to think. It is a hard way to think about what society do you want if it could be truly different than our own. I recognize in myself that having been a political journalist for so long, I can imagine things on the edge of our politics, right? A Medicare for all, that kind of thing. It is very hard for me to imagine a completely different society because I'm so used to reporting on the institutions and social forces and dynamics that keep ours together. But, you know, obviously people can go too far with it. You can go all the way into where you're just thinking about utopia and you stop caring or really working in a clear way to, to, to make this better. But I do think having that, that lens in your mind is worthwhile. Um, so certainly you can feel free to send me your utopias at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Our engineer is Cynthia Gill. Thank you to her. To our producer is Jeffrey Gell. Thank you to him. And our researcher, our new researcher is Roger Karma. Thank you to Roger as well. You guys are Clancho's Vox Media podcast production. Mm-hmm.